When we started this podcast two months ago, the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide was just shy of 250,000. Now, it's nearly 4.4 million. That's about an 18-fold increase. We are now at a point where we're starting to see ripple effects. That is, ways in which the pandemic is affecting all sorts of aspects of our lives. Some have been predictable. Others, not so much. There have been negative effects, to be sure, but also some potentially positive ones. Some of these changes may end up to be fleeting, while others may stay with us for a long time to come. I'm John Finnegan, Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. We've always wanted this podcast to be about people and about evidence, but this episode is a bit more speculative, and that's because these ripple effects are just beginning to emerge, and we haven't been able to fully study them yet. We've chosen to focus on just four changes, exercise, domestic violence, chronic disease, and how we connect with each other. How has the pandemic already affected these important public health issues, and what further changes might we expect? Finally, and perhaps most importantly, what can we learn from these ripple effects and use them to improve our lives moving forward? Today is May 15, 2020, and this episode is called, you guessed it, Ripple Effects. It sometimes seems impossible to find any corner of our lives that hasn't been touched by COVID-19. Some of these ripple effects feel overwhelming, others even hopeful, and there's everything in between. I'm Michael Joyce, host of this podcast, and the first ripple effect we explore in this episode is a distressing one, domestic violence. Like many of the ripple effects we'll talk about, it reveals urgent but neglected issues. Issues this pandemic has brought back into focus. In the last seven weeks, we've had a 33% increase in crisis calls. Deanna Smith is the director of the Domestic Abuse Service Center for the Hennepin County Attorney's Office in Minneapolis. It is difficult to measure the scope of domestic violence, especially during a pandemic when families are confined to their homes and victims have limited places to disclose the abuse they are enduring. That's why many experts suspect domestic violence of all kinds is probably being underreported during this pandemic. It's also a good example of how getting reliable data during a pandemic, as you'll hear from others in this podcast, is really difficult. Not only is it hard to keep up with a fast-moving pandemic, but traditional research methods are hampered by stay-at-home orders. But this doesn't mean that information isn't being collected. Even anecdotal information and emerging trends are vital in beginning to understand ripple effects. What we've learned from victims during this time is that COVID-19 is being used as an additional tool by abusers to further isolate, deprive, manipulate, and control victims. Some examples of this are threatening to withhold medical care, demeaning social distancing efforts, disabling internet and phone connections to prevent contact with family members or friends. For many victims, an abusive partner leaving for work provided much-needed relief 
And with many individuals working remotely or being laid off, that relief is no longer there. Sometimes the preliminary numbers about abuse can be confusing, even misleading without important context. We are seeing across the country significant drops in Child Protective Service reports. And there are some large metro communities that reported 50, 60, 70 percent drop in the reports that they normally get by people that are concerned. Dr. Arnie Graff is the chairman of the Division of Child Abuse Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So while the numbers for the county reports have dropped dramatically, it's really not a true reflection of what's going on because we really don't have contact with these kids, including teenagers like we used to, so that we could talk to them about uh, what's going on, do you feel safe? Both Dr. Graff and Deanna Smith describe a situation akin to a perfect storm. So we know that the risk for abuse is the stress is much higher. You've got financial impact. You've got kids staying at home that might have behavior issues that normally were out of the house for six to eight hours a day at a school. We have increased sales of alcohol and guns, and we have people confined to small quarters. So we know that there's more going on, and we're really not getting a true picture of, of how serious this is. But Deanna Smith isn't completely comfortable calling the current situation a perfect storm. It was a storm before this. Pre-pandemic, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some sort of physical violence by an intimate partner. And just last week, the 10th victim of intimate partner homicide in Minnesota was confirmed. So these numbers are alarming themselves. And then we add the additional barrier of COVID-19 onto that. Before we leave the domestic violence ripple effect, I want to clarify that most domestic violence services, like Hennepin County's, remain open. We'll give you the contact information at the end of the podcast. For many of us, this is the sound of exercise. Go, 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 fight, fight, fight. And start to listen to the sound of your breath. And for many of us, these sounds have gone away as exercise facilities have closed in response to COVID-19. According to multiple sources, about one in six Americans have a gym membership. Strangely enough, the CDC says a similar percentage get no exercise at all. But there are no definitive data yet on how the pandemic has affected our workout routines. It seems more people are out walking or visiting green spaces, but does that represent an increase or decrease in exercise for them, or more a response to cabin fever? No one knows for sure, so I turn to Mark Pereira for some insights. Dr. Pereira is a professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, who studies the role of activity and nutrition in diabetes and heart disease. I hypothesize that people, on average, are probably not getting as much regular physical activity as they normally would. They were already sitting too much on average. Now people are probably sitting even more. They're working at home. They're not getting out as much. 
So those are the things that I'm really concerned about. And if you bring in the population who needs to sit the least and needs to move more, it's the people with things like type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. I think what the pandemic has done is given us an opportunity to, to reframe the notion of physical activity. Dan Butner is a National Geographic fellow and writer, best known for his work with what he calls blue zones. They're the parts of the world, like Okinawa, Sardinia, and others, where people live a long time and experience less obesity, dementia, heart disease, and some cancers. None of them go to the gym or drink power drinks or take supplements. They're environments are set up so they're nudged into physical activity every day. They do some of their housework by, or most of their housework by hand. They have a garden out back. Every time they go to work or over to a friend's house or out to eat, it occasions a walk. And we can do most of that very easily during a pandemic. And I hope we do more of it post-pandemic. Even though people aren't able to gather in person at exercise facilities, many of those organizations have not closed. They've simply adapted to a new way of doing business. Take, for instance, the YMCA. What can you do when your 28 locations have to shut down their gyms? Well, to be fair, unlike many fitness centers, the YMCA has always been about more than just exercise. They do child care, summer camps, and a bunch of social programs. Since the shutdown, they've distributed over 160,000 meals, maintained their child care services for essential worker families, and turn some locations into blood donation centers. Then they identified another group that really needed their help. We've started calling our seniors, and we called 92,000 of them. Greg Weibel is the chief operating officer for the YMCAs of the Greater Twin Cities. So we've reached out and called them, and we're using social determinants of health as our backdrop to ask them questions about how are you doing, what do you need, Surely connecting them to some fitness options, which we've virtualized. So we have Facebook Live and we have um, recorded sessions and they can access those types of resources. But what else is it that they might be experiencing? Are you lonely? Do you need food? Are you concerned about your housing situation? And how can we connect them to other resources in the community? Weibel says the senior outreach, as well as some of the virtual fitness classes, have worked so well they plan to continue offering them, even after they reopen their facilities. As coronavirus rages, people continue to get sick and die from other illnesses. Most doctors see very little COVID. So how has the pandemic affected these illnesses and these doctors? One interesting phenomenon is what's been happening with the world's leading cause of death. The main thing that is being reported in many hospitals across the country is that admissions for cardiovascular disease are down, uh, maybe as much as 50 to 60 percent. And we simply don't know why that is. Dr. Ryan Demmer is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, who studies the intersection of infectious diseases and chronic diseases. It could be that with people staying home, possibly with uh, less stress, less exposure to pollution, that cardiovascular event rates have actually decreased in the short run. Alternatively, cardiovascular events are being displaced because people with pre-existing disease are more likely to contract SARS-CoV-2 and develop COVID-19 
and die from COVID-19 as opposed to a more traditional heart attack. And then a third explanation is the possibility that people are simply staying home. They have signs and symptoms of a heart attack, but they're afraid to go to the hospital for fear of contracting SARS-CoV-2. So they stay home, they have the heart attack, and they die at home. And capturing that information is much more difficult in a pandemic than it is in normal times. So we're going to have to wait to get some of those answers. But Dr. Demmer says that although the reasons for this strange drop are unclear, what is clear is what people should do if they think they're having a stroke, a heart attack, or any other life-threatening emergency. So the upshot is that if you're experiencing signs and symptoms of a heart attack or a stroke, you need to call your doctor and get to the hospital. The risk of COVID-19 is far lower uh, than the risk of death due to a heart attack or a stroke if those signs and symptoms are ignored and you stay at home. Dr. Renit Mishori, a family medicine physician at Georgetown University, has already seen her fair share of neglected and untreated diseases during this pandemic. She worries about the kids not getting their immunizations. She wonders about people so afraid of COVID that they don't come in for serious problems. And what happens when things open up again and these neglected problems flood the healthcare system? She's also worried about her colleagues who have been laid off or medical offices and clinics that can't afford to stay open. And then there is something else that bothers her tremendously. The emotional toll of this epidemic on my colleagues has been very, very heavy. And I am very concerned that um, as this eases up, we're going to see this from depression to PTSD Um, anxiety, and and I'm worried about higher suicide rates. I think that a lot of people in my world are talking about the moral injury from um, having to make life and death decisions, not having anything in their arsenal to treat people and seeing them die alone. Um, It's very, very difficult. And I think we're going to see a wave of health professionals who have very serious and perhaps even debilitating um, mental health and emotional issues. And there's another effect Dr. Mashori thinks will be more of a tsunami than a ripple. With the unprecedented and enormous loss of jobs in the community, there are going to be millions of people newly without insurance because in our crazy healthcare system, insurance comes from where you work. And um, this affects many people, uh, but primarily people on the margins and people of color and and immigrants and other vulnerable communities. A big reason we started this podcast in mid-March was because we wanted to connect people with reliable information during the pandemic. We also wanted to share stories, because stories, especially stories that resonate emotionally, form some of our strongest bonds. But so do face-to-face interactions, touch, and just seeing new people and old friends. This is what we traditionally think of when we talk about connectivity. Granted, some of these are no longer an option during this pandemic, but some are. Before this pandemic, I was a big believer that Facebook and FaceTime is never going to replace face-to-face conversation. I was a big believer that sitting down with a friend after you sort of hug him or shake his hand, it was irreplaceable. 
That's Dan Butner, our Blue Zones author and National Geographic Explorer. But I've really come to believe with COVID, we have a lot more time. We're forced into certain isolation, so we have an appetite for social interaction. I do think Zoom and these video conferencing actually can do a pretty good job of connecting people. The key is that you really care about the person on the other end of the line. They care about you. And I think you can have meaningful conversations. There's an opportunity to reframe it as a positive. I do want to say this. For anyone out there listening with a loved one who is hospitalized or who had a family member die during this pandemic and are not or were not able to touch them or be close to them because of social distancing, I think about that lost connection and feel so sorry that was the case. I think it's hard for many of us to fathom what you went through. I'd like to end this episode with my 90-year-old father. He's never had a mobile phone, smart or otherwise, and he's never been online other than with family members, who shall remain nameless, trying to show him what he's missing. Well, last weekend, we got him and my mother set up on a Zoom meeting with some old friends from around the world. Friends they, quite possibly, may never see again. This weekend experience was an utter delight. We had been hiking partners for the better part of two decades and been separated for the last four years. To see their faces and read their emotions, to hear the tone of their voice as I looked at them was an utter delight and uh, most meaningful. It was a joyous occasion. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. You can also subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. We'd love to hear from you. And if you or anyone you know is in a domestic violence situation, please reach out for help. In Minnesota, you can call 612-348-5073 and get help with legal consultation, financial support, shelter, and safety planning. Today is May 15th, 2020, and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide is nearly 4.5 million. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.